32 counties. United by people. My name is Una. And my name is Andrea. And this is United, United Ireland. Ireland. Every week on United Ireland, we go under the hood of issues in Ireland beyond the headlines, bringing you smart people who know what they're talking about. We also have a sister series that comes out every Sunday to help you come to terms maybe with life before the start of the following week. Uh, Last Sunday, Sunday Soothe asked what we could learn about our own sense of Inui from research on rising levels of sadness and depression in American teenagers. Like it's actually not a depressive martini episode. It actually does always strike a hopeful note um, as we look for soothation in soothing times. So if you want to get in on that and get that shit in your inbox every week, sign up to our Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. But perhaps less soothing. Or no, more exciting. T-minus one week-ish um, until the Northern Ireland Assembly elections, Thursday, May 5th. And this is our uh, NI Assembly election spesh. This is our fourth Assembly election spesh episode. And this week, we're going to look at what we feel is actually probably the biggest um, issue uh, even though it's it's less talked about beyond the political binaries. With more and more people losing interest in the game playing of protocol politics um, as the cost of living spirals out of control, 300,000 in unspent budgets left dangling First Minister Paul Gavin resigns in power playing moves. The thing that will decide this election is which party can make people's day-to-day lives better, right? And so as well as being a race for the First Minister seat between Sinn Féin and the DUP, and in the background, we're seeing the rise of parties of people for profit and the Alliance Party coming through. We're going to be talking about poverty. Poverty is an issue that hugely affects Northern Ireland and the cost of living, um, while not unique, hits different in the North. So this week, we're talking to Kira Fitzpatrick. She's a lecturer at the Ulster University of Law Transitional Justice Institute and is a Washington, Ireland programme alumni. She knows what she's talking about. Um, she is researching the social security system and socioeconomic rights as well. So, yeah, looking forward to talking to her. And if you so want to listen far- to our, sorry, Andrea, if you want to listen to our previous uh, assembly apps, what apps bashes, what have we done? So far, we've had Susan McKay, she talked about the big picture issues in the election and questioned what unionism's big ideas were. Uh, we honed in on a new school of candidates uh, who are moving away from party politics with Emma D'Souza. She's an independent candidate. And last week we talked arts and culture policies of the parties and actual parties <laughs> with Ava founder Sarah McBriar. Fab. Now, before we get into uh, election news, let's have a quick Different kind of state of the nation. Andrew, could you please play Elon Musk's theme tune? As much as you'd loathe to be adding to the musky discourse on Twitter, um, I just find it so depressing that it finally happened and this concentration of public-private discourse in the hands of more tech oligarchical douchebags, basically. And I think it's kind of different in a way to, obviously you could be like, yeah, but you use WhatsApp and that's Zuckerberg or Instagram and it's Zuckerberg and Meta. And it's like, there is something kind of different about, obviously we all think Zuckerberg is Zuckerberg and we all know the issues with the trash pile that he has built for himself. But there's something kind of different about that starting out and becoming giant and the person still remaining in charge and being absolutely terrible. Um, And this actually being a point of purchase of $44 billion by an individual who is rolling around uh, in his tweets talking about this fake idea of free speech that he has Because if there is anything um, that diminishes the already poor content moderation or moderation of abuse and harassment on that platform, it's only bad news. You know, it's already a complete dumpster fire. It's gotten really, really bad over the past few years. You know, on a personal level, you know, I can't even barely interact uh, with people on the platform because of the years of abuse and harassment and insults. Um, and trolling mostly from 
right wing, far right conspiracy accounts, um, that is is just getting worse and worse and worse. You know, and like I'm a white <laughs> middle class journalist in Ireland. You know, and of course a lot of it is gender and a lot of, is homophobic. A lot of it is politically motivated, and a lot of it is just um, straight up bizarre harassment um, by certain individuals who keep doing it uh, despite reporting it again and again and again. And when you think about that, that's the situation currently um, for anybody who just like writes in a newspaper, like, can you imagine what it's like for black Irish people or for, you know, people from any kind of um, minority background or so-called minority background, um, you know, how the idea that they loosen the, the, the nuts and bolts of this, um, platform even further to turn it into a version of like 4chan basically is, is just absolutely abysmal. And, um, yeah, I guess it's, it's over really. I mean, I, I, unless he kind of just gets bored with his latest new toy, um, and, and moves on when he figures out how moderation content moderation actually works. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's people who potentially contributed to healthy enough discourse on the platform once upon a time are utterly sidelined from it now. You know, I wipe my tweets every few months, for example, just have a little semblance of control and, and, and just, um, you know, you can't, I can't, can't even look at your mentions or anything. And like, that's what it's like right now. So if you have him coming in being like, yeah, no, it's all going to be about free speech. Oh, cool. So you're just going to flood it with, you know, Nazis and Trump and Tommy Robinson's and racism and unadulterated crap uh, just because you're a billionaire, the richest man in the world, white South African guy who couldn't give a fuck. I mean, it's terrible. However, I do think that a different platform could emerge uh, that would be better safer, nicer, more pleasant um, as Twitter begins its descent uh, under Musk's reign or whether he turns it into some weird crypto marketplace or whatever. So I actually think something really positive could come from this moment as Twitter collapses. Maybe we will move to the new platform known as Real Life. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Always a flex, Andrea. (laughs) As Tyler, the creator says, I'm very outside. (laughs) Now it's time for election news. Okay, we've been really full on into the election vibes. What news have you been um, looking up as we near polling day? Looking up in it, I'm just soaking it up. I'm lolling around in it. Firstly, there has been a move to refer the Northern Irish Protocol uh, legal challenge to the UK Supreme Court, um, which is obviously uh, making unionists have a little dance of joy. Um, The Northern Ireland's Lady Chief Justice Siobhan Keegan um, has granted leave to appeal against a ruling that the post-Brexit trading agreement arrangement is lawful. So that's going through the Supreme Court justices. Um, no date has been set yet, but um, obviously that is something that will um, be very relevant to the election. Uh, the case was taken by uh, the leader of the TUV, Jim Allister, with others. So, yeah, that's a, a mad flex. And Sinn Féin have come up with another um giveaway election policy. What's going on with that? You love to hear it in the run-up to elections, don't you? Just a little <laughs> like, hey guys, everyone's getting some money, okay? Like, we're just going to give you some money and then everything is going to be grand, okay? So, oh my God, there's an election. So mad. That is gas. Anyway, who wants £230 one-off payment to help you with your cost of living? Me. Uh, do you, yeah, Well, like, obviously I do, but like, it's not going to make much difference to life, is it? No. Like, what's that going to do? That's like... Pay an electricity bill. Obviously helpful, but like... Sinead. Uh, that, yeah. And then what? Yeah. I think it's... The, that's... The, that's And then what? Uh, that's my thoughts on that. Um, and then... Finally. Oh, yeah. Well, I suppose we were talking about this, like, 
obviously there's still the the concentration and media, especially on like Sinn Féin DUP. And I think while it is important to talk about them as like these, you know, the power brokers or whatever, I really think that in this election, it's really important to remember that the greatest growth and the most interesting trend is amongst like the quote unquote, the others, um, Nicole Kidman face and like parties who don't necessarily subscribe or amplify the traditional binaries. That was why it was so interesting to talk to Emma D'Souza and, and really when people talk about, you know, where the North is going um, and obviously there's so much discourse around United Ireland, where it's going is more politically diverse and less tied to those binaries. And I think that's really, I think that's really healthy. And I think it's, that's the big story of the election for me so far. The past is being left where, where it needs to be and the future is looking brighter. Wow. Are you, is that like a new Fine Gael slogan or something that you just came up with? <laughs> Did work in PR. If anyone <laughs> wants to hire me for election time, get in touch. Now we are going to talk to Dr. Kira Fitzpatrick about our topic today, the overarching issue of poverty in the North. Dr. Kira Fitzpatrick is a lecturer at the University or the Ulster University School of Law. Um, her primary where her primary interest is in social security law and social justice. She examines the treatment of people um, living in destitution historically and presently, especially women. And she's also an academic advisor at the Cliff Edge Coalition, which campaigns for welfare reform mitigations. And my understanding of which meaning that's trying to like ensure the harmful or harsh aspects or loopholes in welfare systems don't hit people in the wrong way. She's repeatedly warned and spoken out about the dangers of poverty in the North, particularly of late with regards uh, to the spiraling cost of living crisis. So she's a really, really great person to have on to talk about this issue. Hello, Dr. Fitzpatrick. Hello, Una. Thank you so much for having me today. Um, Your own background in this sphere, um, what has your... Could you tell us a bit about that and what has your uh, research focused on it most recently and what drew you to do this work initially and this analysis of society? Well, it actually goes back to um, undergrad. Uh, when I was doing a law degree, I knew I didn't want to practice uh, in a law firm, for example, or to be a solicitor. Um, And what happened was I took a module called street law and that's where you go into different settings like schools or prisons um, and you teach people about the law and how they can use the law in order to ensure that they can secure their rights. Um, And I was placed as a third year undergraduate, so about at the age of about 21, um, in a juvenile justice centre. And I was there for about 12 weeks on a placement. Um, And I was teaching these young guys predominantly about how they can use the law in their everyday lives. And I realised that there were certain patterns emerging as to who was in this juvenile justice centre, the different reasons that they were there. And in the 12 weeks that I was there, I could see the same people circling in and out. I found a lot of them were, for example, in care. And, you know, a lot of them were struggling to access social welfare rights. Um, And a lot of them were just struggling to find their way in our society that is so unequal. So that kicked me off, but the recession hit and I had to find a job wherever I could in 2010. And I ended up falling into a job in public affairs. I was a, a public affairs executive for a lobbying firm in Belfast. And that helped me to see a completely different side of society and basically the importance of speaking to our politicians about issues and lobbying them and how far you can get when you actually, you know, campaign on an issue. And it was really, really interesting, but I knew I wanted to get back to the social justice. And I spoke to my supervisor, Professor Grania McKeever, who was actually my um, uh, teacher uh, in the street law module. And she encouraged me to apply for a PhD, uh, which I did. And her area is also uh, social security and social justice. She's a professor in both at Ulster University. And she's been such 
a strong role model for me. Um, as I say, she was my supervisor for the PhD and we've done a lot of work on destitution together since. Um, and, you know, I've just, my passion for it has just grown and grown. Um, another thing that I have done is when I lived in North Belfast, I've now moved back up to South Derry where I'm originally from, but I lived in North Belfast for a few years and I volunteered with a local organisation and um, supporting people who were in um, emergency need. Um, and, you know, I saw what destitution looked like and I saw what poverty looked like and I saw what lack of participation looked like. And that really bothered me how people don't listen to those in poverty and I thought well look I'm going to be the second best thing and I'm going to try and be a voice for those people while they don't have a voice because honestly they don't and you know that is one thing that academics activists campaigners have been fighting for for years and years and years for decades for those people who do not have much who are struggling every day to have a voice. And I think that's why we are where we are at this present moment in time. Let's talk about the the specific aspects regarding poverty in, in the North, because people talk about, you know, the cost of living crisis, you know, but actually that just means people don't have enough money, you know. Um, and obviously poverty is not a uniquely Northern Irish um, issue, um, but there are aspects that are amplified. Um, so what is the context in, of poverty in the North that might be different to the Republic of Ireland or um, Britain? Because, you know, you hear things like Derry Strabane is often cited as one of the poorest parts of, of the UK, especially with regards to child poverty. I think it had um, one of the highest rates of child poverty uh, in the developed world at the same time as the Celtic Tiger. It's quite a stark co- contrast so what are those specific um, aspects of poverty that are amplified in the North and why? <clears throat> Obviously, you know, we can't go any further without mentioning the conflict and the impact that that has had. And poverty was one of the, you know, it was one of the key drivers in the civil rights movement, for example. And that remains steadfast until now. Poverty has not been addressed. You know, there has been a commitment to a poverty strategy, a modern poverty strategy since 2006 in the St Andrews Agreement. They were actually taking, you know, the executive was actually taken to court because they haven't delivered on that in 2015. Here we are in 2022 and there's still no anti-poverty strategy. So there has been no strategic and thought out way to actually deal with poverty and growing poverty. We also have the impact of austerity here. For the last 10 years since the Conservative government was elected, well, over 10 years now, in 2010, we've seen huge cuts to public services. And that's had a disproportionate impact on the North because of um, you know, the context which, which we are in. For example, a lot more people than in the rest of the UK relying on disability benefits, for example. A lot more people who are not able to be in work for different reasons, whether that's caring responsibilities, whether that is mental health issues, whether that is a long-term disability. You know, that has been really compounded by austerity. And there's really frightening statistics that were published recently by the National Institute of um, Economic and Social Research in the UK, which shows how destitution due to the cost of living crisis is going to hit differently in different parts of the UK. And it shows that in the North, we're going to face a 67% rise in destitution. That's double the rate in other parts of the UK. And it's because of that context of poverty that we are going to feel it so much more intensely than other parts. Of course, the political instability that we have faced over the last um, you know, 20 years since um, the Good Friday Agreement, the Belfast Agreement, isn't helping matters at all. This cycle of government, no government, 
is is not helping. The fact that we can't spend money that's being invested in the North because of political disagreement, that we can't come to an agreement on an anti-poverty strategy. And instead, we're in this cycle of panel report after panel report, strategy after strategy that are sitting on dusty shelves and not actually seeing implementation. There has been a lot more retrenchment of our welfare state in the north than there is in the south. So where we've seen austerity um, with our friends and neighbours over the border, it just isn't the same intensity as we've seen here in the north um, that has been really quite implemented from Westminster by the Conservative government. So how does poverty then go on to move the political dialogue? Like eventually, like the growth, we have seen like the growth of people before profit in the North. Um, and that seems quite interesting in terms of interrogating class politics beyond the traditional political binaries. Is that something we should be hopeful for? I think that this precipice that we're, that we're in at the minute, you know, the fact that we're in a, a real crisis in regards to the cost of living and all these factors have collided to make this hugely disturbing picture, you know, with the COVID pandemic hitting people at the bottom the hardest, with austerity over the last 10 years, with the already difficult context in Northern Ireland. I think that politicians are, you know, beginning to take more notice and they're listening and a lot of them are trying to hang their hat on the cost of living crisis in this election because it is now not just impacting those at the very bottom, but it's moving up into the middle class um, where more voters potentially are. And that's why people and politicians are paying more attention to it. Um, and yes, I think that the kind of growth of parties like People Before Profit do give me some hope because what I really noticed when I've been trying to support people who are in poverty to try and access their social justice rights or their social welfare rights is their lack of participation. People really do treat those who are unemployed, those who are struggling to make ends meet, those who are single mothers, those who are asylum seekers or who are from um, a different ethnic background um, as, as lesser. And they treat them in a really dehumanizing way. And when I was trying to advocate for these people, um, or when I have been trying to advocate from these people, you know, the, the, the bureaucracy and the different public organizations, public service organizations would go back and say, why do you have this person calling me to advocate for your rights? You know, as if it was unfair, as if, you know, they shouldn't have somebody who's really trying to fight for them. Um, and with people before profit, I feel that, you know, they are mobilizing people who are working class, who um, are in the community, who are feeling the impacts of poverty, of the cost of living, and they're telling them that it's okay to speak out and it's okay to say that this isn't right and it's okay and you should go on strike and you need to fight for your rights. I think people have been beaten down so much over the last kind of 30, 40 years, the stigma has been built to levels that we haven't seen before. And it's good to see working class people coming out and saying, it is not okay that I can't turn my lights on. It is not okay that I have no heat in the tank. It is not okay that I'm sitting in a coat. It's not okay that I have to send my kids to school with no breakfast in their belly. Um, and I think the more people, working class people, people who are being impacted by this, who have real life experience, the more they speak out, the more pressure we can put on politicians and the more chance there is of real meaningful change. Are you seeing any party policies um, or any kind of statements, I suppose, or promises, not that you can really rely on them uh, in election season, that that feel like, oh, that might make headway. Like, that's an interesting uh, point. Um, obviously, like, uh, you really rarely hear, for example, the DUP talk about poverty. They're kind of in their own self-reflective existential kind of cycle of rhetoric. But is there anything that you've heard over the last month, let's say, that you thought, oh, God, if that happened now, that'd be good? 
Quite honestly, no. Um, from any party. I was, and, and this is my own view and opinion, I was very, um, I suppose, excited uh, when we had Deirdre Hargy appointed um, in the Department for Communities. Um, you know, the, her discussion around the policies that she wanted to implement from uh, the new decade, new approach agreement, um, you know, it was really hopeful. We were going to see a review of um, the welfare reform mitigations. We were going to see the implementation of an anti-poverty strategy. You know, I, I was truly so hopeful that there would be change. Now, granted, and I acknowledge that we had COVID in between times, that it was a very short cycle of government, you know, just over a couple of years, because obviously, you know, they only came back in um, at the end of uh, January 2020. So time was short. But... I know from my work with the Cliff Edge Coalition that the DUP actively um, blocked uh, the couple of loopholes that we wanted um, kind of fixed in the welfare mitigation package. Um, so that really slowed things down and we were fighting for that for two years. It only just about come in before the DUP left the executive. Why did uh, they do that? I don't know. I don't know. I, I truly think that it is political game playing. Um, and, you know, uh, Paula Bradley, who was the chair of the Communities Committee from the DUP, uh, you know, she was very supportive publicly about what we wanted to do in regards to closing the loopholes around the benefit cap and the bedroom tax, very publicly supportive. Um, you know, every time we went to the Communities Committee, she said, I'm going to see what the delay is. And when then we found out that they were the delay. Um, and it is quite interesting now that Paul Bradley has actually stepped away from the party. Um, um, because she was she was somebody that I thought we can really work with Paula to, to get these measures over the line. So what we have had this last couple of years is a series of strategy groups, expert panels. We've had an anti-poverty expert panel um, and then an implementation group that has been really disappointing the expert panel that had really strong advocates on it with Bernadette Michaliski, with Goretti Horgan, um, who we know um, is, you know, both really strong advocates for uh, people in poverty. Uh, the strategy was fantastic. Um, but I have heard that, you know, the implementation group are really disappointed with how it's actually you know, rolling out in practice. They're not getting anywhere with all of the main recommendations. Obviously, now um, the executive has fallen and now that anti-poverty strategy is basically stuck and it's going to be up to a new assembly to take that forward. And you have this knot in your stomach thinking, will they actually take it forward? Is it going to be another document? Like all the other documents that are sitting rotting on a shelf. I was in one of the expert panels um, around discretionary support. Uh, Professor Grania McKeever was actually the chair of that panel. For people who don't know, discretionary support is a system whereby if you're in crisis, you can call up and get a or apply online and you get an emergency grant or loan in order to get you through a tough period in your life. Um, we made a series of recommendations. We worked really, really hard to get them um, to the Minister Deirdre Hargey uh, for October to ensure that they could be approved and that they could go through in legislation. And we were really disappointed, or personally, I was really disappointed when the report was just published the Friday before PERDA, the Friday on PERDA. So here we are with another report published, um, but no implementation and up to a new Assembly Minister to take forward. It's so frustrating living in this cycle where you have people who are passionate and are using their time and, uh, you know, are using their expertise to make recommendations to government, not to see them being implemented or to see them being so watered down that they're not going to have the real impact that they need to have. Mm. One action that keeps rearing its head is one-off payments as an emergency measure to address poverty, electricity, etc. Um, that's happening north and south. Do you think these work at all or are they just stop gaps maybe? Oh, they're just stop gaps, to, 
to, you know, to be really short about it. We have a social security system. We have a social welfare system in both North and South. And with a colleague, actually, um, Charles O'Sullivan, who is um, actually a Cork man and uh, he got his PhD in Maynooth, now working in Ulster in the McGee campus. Together, we looked at the social security systems, North and South. I concentrated on the North and Charles concentrated on the South. And we looked at what a joint social security system might look like if we were one day united and if we were in a new Ireland what would be possible in terms of social welfare and how we could guarantee people a social minimum and guarantee people the dignity of having enough money cash in order to buy the essentials and not have to resort to using a food bank or to contacting a charity for support and And, you know, when I was writing that article, I was like, this would be amazing. I felt really, really hopeful that we could start from scratch and that we could actually build a system for people. Um, And, you know, off the back of listening to people's experiences rather than the system that we're both kind of trying to make work that's, you know, existed from the 1940s that hasn't changed a great deal considering how much the world has changed um, and that, you know, is just really creaking under the pressure and creaking under, uh, you know, the drive of neoliberalism to do away with, uh, you know, having a system of social security at all. So these one-off payments, they don't make sense to me. Why not utilise the social security system that we have, the social welfare system, and actually make sure that you have a rise in benefits? Like we saw that the South did that really well um, when COVID hit. You know, they guaranteed that people who suddenly found themselves unemployed with no notice would be able to get by. Why can't we guarantee people that kind of dignity always? Um, you know, good question. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it all comes back to politics um, it all comes back to uh, different agendas and how the working class um, and their really their dignity is always, you know, pushed to the side um, over other interests that, well, quite frankly, are going to get people more votes. So these mm-hmm. one-off payments, like really, quite honestly, Sinn Féin said yesterday, £230. Yeah. That's that's not even going to make a dent in yeah. the suffering that people are going through. I wonder, like, considering you spoke about kind of that idea of kind of um, the potential of, of Irish unity uh, with regards to kind of creating new systems that are empathic and contemporary and have a different way of going about them as opposed to like inheriting various bureaucratic nonsense um but uh, and then kind of molding that and i think that's one of the really exciting things to people when you leave aside you know the other aspects of irish unity like and also you know the idea of an all all island um national health service for example like there's loads of potential in, in various things like that but what would you see? Those are kind of down the line, uh, perhaps, and they're really massive and systemic things that would be great to happen. But what are some of the solutions that you think or things that you'd like to see happen now and that could happen now when slash if the assembly is formed straight off the bat, first week in, three bits, just go? Well, straight off the bat, just go, you know, I... I, I I've said often that the the assembly needs to implement all of those plans. You know, we need to stop basically stalling and talking about more strategies, about more strategies. You know, it's all well and good, for example, that the DUP have come out and offered 30 hours of free childcare. They've literally been in government for, you know, they've been the lead party for years and years. And, you know, we still have no childcare strategy. We're the only part of the UK that hasn't implemented a childcare strategy. So we need to look at the the reports and the expert panel reports and the strategies that have been written and actually start to implement them. And in terms of North-South cooperation, that's a really interesting question, Una. when Charles and I were writing that paper, we, we actually realised, cheapers, like, we really don't talk to each other an awful lot 
about these issues. There's amazing academics working over the border in Irish universities on the same issues that we are, but we're working in silos because we're looking at the UK social security system and they're potentially focusing on the Irish social welfare system. And how can we get together and actually start talking about what a new all-island system might look like and why it might benefit everyone? Um, you know, look, look at what Scotland is doing as a devolved nation. You know, they've crafted a whole new social security system that is built on the ethos of dignity and respect they're using people's experiences to shape public services. They are listening to people. They are, you know, they're tackling child poverty by making sure that a child payment gets to all those families with the child under six to make sure that they have the best start in life, that they have enough food in order to concentrate in school. They're actually doing, they're not just talking about it. And I think that, you know, we met for the first time on Zoom. It was during the pandemic um, and we're planning to meet more regularly as an, uh, an all-island social security network. Um, and we really think that it's a good way to start these conversations and to bring other organisations um, that are working in the grass at grassroots level and, you know, non-profit organisations and eventually government to listen to us to why it's a good idea to think differently about our uh, social security system and how it can work across the island. Because of course, we have a lot of people that are traveling across the border for work and childcare every single day. And healthcare. For healthcare every single day. It's a really complex system. It makes sense. It makes sense for us to look at it together. Um, And, you know, I don't think that looking at these socioeconomic issues in partnership bears a threat to anybody's individual sense of identity. That's mm. my opinion. You know, I think that it can work for everyone um, and we could have a much, much better system if we actually started thinking outside of these tiny depressing little boxes that we're all living in at the minute. <laughs> hugely huge potential in all of that thinking and I think that it's um, something that's going to continue apace over the next few years Dr. Keir Fitzpatrick thank you so much for bringing your expertise um, and, and your knowledge uh, to, to the podcast hugely appreciated and keep up the great work thanks so much thanks so much for having me Andre it's time for Get in the Sea what is getting in the sea this week? This week, getting soaking wet. It is the brouhaha. Love that phrase. The brouhaha over the removal of some parking spaces in the Phoenix Park. Park, 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 park. To make way for a cycling lane so that other forms of transport may avail of said park as well as the, the cars in the Phoenix Park. Now, it's just ap- like... It just, I can't get my head around the entitlement of people who drive cars who are getting so annoyed when they're like, it's about access to the zoo. It's like, how are people meant to access the zoo when there is a six kilometer walk once you get into the zoo? There's also a car park right beside the zoo. And why there's this such like anger against another form of transport using the park as well. It just, when you break it down to that, you're just like, sorry, I don't understand what, and uh, ever, I've been very entertained by uh, Joni Mitchell's song, The Paved Paradise and put, put Up a Parking Lot. That really sums up what's going on in the, in the park because mm. it's like, it's a park. Can we get, like whenever any of this conversation happens, can we get back to the fact that it's a park? Why are you so obsessed with parking spaces in a park? Um, and I think someone made a very good point on the dump fire of Twitter that like, it's so weird that there's no parking at the Eiffel Terrace and no one can go to it. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, obviously parking should be uh, allowed for people with accessibility issues or like people who need to, um, you know, who need, who need that 
but there should also be like just shuttle buses at the entrance to bring people in or whatever. And like this idea of like, well, you know, how are you meant to walk? You know, how are you meant to walk from the North Circular Road? It's like, how are you meant to walk around the zoo for three hours, babe? Like, how are you meant to get from Kerry with three kids to the zoo? This is not just for Dublin people to be cycling around in this park, you know. Um, There is not one pedestrian crossing the entire length of the Phoenix Park. From the North Circular to the distant gate beyond Farmley towards Castleknock, not one. There is total, um, you know, ridiculous OPW uh, under Patrick Donovan's instruction moves to appease um, the residents of, of Castleknock and, and Ashtown, just so happens to be Leo Berger's constituency, uh, to use the park as a, a little run into town. Just want to get into town faster. And, um, you know, I, I note I, uh, various green politicians and, and councillors or TDs and councillors talking about, you know, how, oh, we need to sort this out and blah, blah, blah. It's like the Green Party couldn't even keep the gates of the Phoenix Park closed during a pandemic when people actually needed that space. And they have a TD in the constituency in Asahurgan, who is fully enthused about the park, but that doesn't seem to uh, um, ha- like mean anything when it comes to uh, Varadkar and Varadkar's constituents and Jack Chambers and all those heads. So oh, I've, yeah. said before, I've said it before, Anna, and I'm going to say it again. I just don't understand why politics is so political. Listen, it's the it's the wisest, wisest phrase ever and we just keep coming back to it. Yeah. But anyway. now it's time for It's Bananas. Very car focused on this episode in our little segments is absolutely bananas. The taxis can still refuse to take you if you're paying the card. Now, loads of people that blew their minds like, no, they have to take cards. They actually don't. Um, I got in a bit of trouble on Twitter because I tried, I got a taxi and I tried to pay by card and he wouldn't take it and he got angry with me and everyone's like, uh, well, you should have asked before you got into the taxi if you took card. Why are you getting so annoyed? I was like, okay, fine, grand, I will. So I did, uh, I tried to be sent the other night and I was like, hi, do you take card? Five taxis wouldn't take me standing on my Five. own town. Yeah. Standing on my own on the street in town, just going, I just want to go home. Like, um, so I eventually used free now and booked a taxi and I got home. But at the moment, the NTA has a consultation out at the moment, uh, about making cashless payment facility, um, essential and the taxis basically have to take cards. So uh, it is on the National Transport Web Association's website, which is nationaltransport.ie. Um, and there's pushback because it is costing a lot more money to run a taxi. And I do get how that is difficult for people who have taxis. The cost of fuel, um, the cost the, of using the apps that they don't get their money for a week, that there is a percentage taken. And there's even a percentage taken of their tips, which I didn't know about. Oh, that's so, a bit. Yeah. So 15% of their tips is taken. So I do understand the plight of the taxi driver. Um, and I think if it is forced that you have to take cards, it will actually work out better because more people will just feel comfortable just hopping in a taxi because I order, use the apps because I don't have cash with me a lot of the time and it's the only way I can use a taxi. So I think this might be a good moment for everyone. So it won't just be, it won't be just the getting lectures going, your cash is king, love. Um, So, yeah. Andrea, I really feel like this could be, you know, if you were running for election, which you kind of do on the podcast every week, this is a great issue that you could actually probably get over the line if you uh, put your put your mind to it. But here's a question. Would you pay like 50 cent more per trip to pay with card? 100%. So would that not just like sort it all out if they're like oh it costs more it's like well if you're getting like 50 cent or 75 cent more per trip if it, if people pay by card everyone's a winner yeah now i do think that there is a question over that because 64 percent of payments made in ireland fully were by card in 2019 so that's three years ago so it's way more now mm. so 
why it, it is punishing, I suppose, these. I know there are fees. So, yeah, I'd cover the fees 100%. But there is also, as part of that consultation, the National Transport Association are doing, they are also, hey, Biggie, sorry, my dog's uh, having a lovely time. Uh, there is also um, a question about should uh, fares increase to help mm. with the running of taxis. So you can have your say on that as well. You've only a little, it only takes two minutes because you can only, you literally can't say very much. I was just like, that's it. That's all I can say. <laughs> what? Um, and usually I'm not very good at filling out those things because I'm literally like, oh, I'm not a form filler, go away. But there wasn't enough to say. Um, and speaking about and not having enough to say, how hard is it to speak to anyone in a bank at the moment? I just wanted to highlight the plight. And this is a personal thing because I've had an issue myself because they cancelled my cards because of their mistake. And they cancelled another business account's the cards. Um, and there were three hours on hold to say, hi, yeah, that's not a fraud. Can you reinstate my cards? Is that not banana town? Yeah, I just can't with banks and their what comms. What of a bank? Well, like Elon know. Musk would have a lot to say on that topic oh, if he collapses. Maybe this is my journey into crypto and NFTs. <laughs> Watch this space. Um, okay, now it's time for our fave bits. Andrea, I'm excited. I cannot even cope with the cultural reset that happened in my life at the weekend. I went to Roisin Murphy. Oh my God. It was just the best thing ever. The reasons being one concert stunning Two, Roisin Murphy is like the absolute queen of life. Um, I love how much her fans adore her. Um, her style is insane. I love all her songs. Obviously that's important at a concert, but all, the best thing about it was, it was like those two things. One, everyone turned up in the crowd. Like the outfits were next level. It was like a fashion show. You're literally going, oh my God, everyone looks amazing. Obviously, everyone trying to impress Roshi Murphy. Going, Imagine if she sees me in the crowd. I want to look stunning. It was like that kind. And like a few people said that they're like, I think she's going to notice that. But I was like, oh my God, these are all gas. But it's like, it's just so gorgeous to see everyone just like, dressing up and we need more of that in life and like there's just not enough events where you show up turn up and dress up um so i i would like to do something secondly it was like watching uh all the ghosts of ravers past come out it was like all the the generation who'd spent their like 20s and 30s raving they're hitting their 40s now they were all there and it was literally like, oh my God, where have we all gone? Because we all are obviously a bit older and not lashing it out and backlash every week. So it was just so gorgeous. Oh, and everyone's face was so happy. There's just so much energy and joy. And it was just really summed up the power of performance and music and joy and togetherness and all, how important it is. And it was just brilliant. Gorgeous. Yeah. Secondly, I didn't go to Dua Lipa, but I felt like I was there and <laughs> I saw so much of it. But it was, oh, that was another weird thing. We were up in the circle and the security guards literally spent their time going, you can't take pictures, you can't take pictures, running up and down the stairs, t- stopping everyone taking pictures in the Olympia. But like literally the whole standing area filmed the whole thing, everyone in their boxes, everyone everywhere else is like, this is so weird. You were, we weren't told there was no cameras allowed. It was very bizarre what was going on. But obviously that wasn't happening at Dua Lipa because I watched the full concert from start to finish on Instagram. (laughs) And it was insane. It was so good. Oh my God. It was like, it's just time for a gorge light pop moment, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Get on on that stage, put out some fireworks, have a dance around. And even like looking at Ed Sheeran, not my vibe, but like the stage, whoever made that stage, wow, they need to get an award. It was so visually stunning and how you can escalate a man on a guitar, basically, who should, not should be in Whelan's, but like his natural habitat is the Whelan stage into this extravaganza. Um, it's just so absolutely stunning. So yeah, I'm here for the good times. Shout out to Denise Chyla and God knows I'm really for rocking the support at Ed Sheeran and Crow Park. How deadly is that? Uh, yeah. 
Um, also, I'm adding a new fave bit to my section, uh, which is my nature fave bit of the week. Love it. Uh, and this week's nature fave bit of the week is wisteria. What an amazing plant. It's just this little magical goddess that sprouts up. And the thing I love most about it, which I actually hate and like I wanted wisteria, but I was like, oh, it's so sticky in winter. Like it just looks like Mars and like, like it's all dead sticks or something. And then it pops out into this purple princess world of like, like elegance. Um, so the key that I found is get two different climbers. So in the winter, there's still greenery there. But then in the summer, wisteria pops out. That's an amazing because tip. I know. Stand by for my, my uh, gardening program. Um, and finally, this is also nature. Bridge Street, uh, Bridgefoot Street Park opens on the 4th of May. And it is uh, going to feature play areas, features, landscapes, a community garden. Gorgeous. A cafe and lots of lovely wild planting. So I just love the addition of any park is always something to be uh um, celebrated but I do wonder there wasn't one mention of car parking spaces where are oh, they going how, how are people going to get to the how are people going to get to the park parked if they can't car park park yeah why was there no uh, <laughs> announcement of that so weird um, great to see more greenery in Dublin out of course uh, along with Dublin one historically one of the least green parts of the capital so more green more seen more vibes my fave bits. Wow. Are you a political party it's slogan writer actually, as well? It's actually um, James Gagan's uh, slogan <laughs> for his election. Um, um, Where is he? I haven't heard anything from him recently. Oh, Let's I saw a photo of him. So, somebody put up a photo, maybe he did, of like, great to be... Just talking at something, something to anyway, the council. Well, anyway, whatever. He's still in the council. Oh, okay. um, and by all accounts, will be running in the general election. <clears throat> um, whenever that is. My fave bits. Anya is... In general. In general. <laughs> and also, I picked up uh, this book by Chile Gonzalez, um, which is a little short book that's kind of half musical musings memoir, half kind of superficial but pleasant thoughts about Anya um, and it's like published by Rough Trade it's it's very nice short and sweet but the most stunning part of it is it has this amazing glittery blue and starlit almost cover and it's literally the most gorgeous um, book cover I've ever seen so Famous. shout out to shout out to glittery book covers now, my real fave bit for this week is hacks. I know I'm late to the party. I know everybody's been banging out of, on about it for ages, but I started watching it this week. You can watch it on Amazon if you get one of those free Amazon subscriptions when you buy a phone. Um, and it is just fantastic. It is so funny. It's sweet. It's full of heart. It's gas. It's so well written, so well structured, just absolutely nails everything. Jean Smart, who um, people may know from like one of the most extraordinary TV acting careers ever. She was the mum in Mare of Easttown. She's been in Fargo, The Watchman, 24, Fraser, like you name it. She's kind of plays this um, older stand-up comedian in Vegas who's potentially getting some of her dates taken away from her and is trying to figure out how to uh, get them back. And she's already won a Golden Globe and a SAG for her her performance in this. She's just absolutely brilliant. My other fave bit is there's been obviously like smatterings of reporting on the Assembly elections. I know we mentioned Jude Weber uh, last week from the Financial Times, but her reporting has been really excellent and feels like she's kind of in sync with the pod. She's got a piece in the Cost of Living this week um, as an election issue in the North and the, uh, in the Financial Times. Um, and as do the Journal, you were saying, Andrea. Mm. Yeah, the journal are doing lovely. They've been on, uh, on what are those things called when you? Oh my god, podcasts. <laughs> what is my problem? Uh, when you go out with flyers trying to get people to vote for you, canvassing. 
Yes. Wow, wow. it's been a while. It's been a while. <laughs> Clearly, we just blocked. Enjoy your political podcast, United <laughs> Ireland, where we can't figure out what canvassing is. <laughs> Don't you know that thing? Flyers. You go ask people for a vote. What is it? <laughs> okay, oh, listeners, it is now time for the return of a must, much missed item from Pod's past. You know what time it is. Okay, of course, JLo News was a much beloved feature of our podcast in olden times. And I think it's right to occasionally, at the very least, bring it back. Obviously, myself and Andre had a joint existential breakdown that we had neglected to mention the fact that Ben Affleck and Jennifer got engaged again 20 years later or whatever with that massive of um, green engagement ring. Obviously, you listeners will know that green is uh, Jennifer Lopez's favorite color and that Jennifer Lopez is, is our favorite person. Um, but equally... Can I just say, though, that there might be trouble brewing in that engagement? Ah, uh, no, Andrea, don't do it to me. Don't I do know, it to me. I know, I Absolutely know. Absolutely not. Uh, if you're... There is, is this some, like, unverified demois or diet product no, stories? It's, it's that kind of vibe. It's a podcast. Hang on. Rebecca, where is it? No, oh, we- I'm going to have to read it out. Somebody sent me the podcast going, you should really listen to this about Ben Affleck. And uh, oh, I have it here. Behind, Beyond the Blinds, uh, 35, Ben Affleck, Boston's Blind Item Boy. Um, no, I don't need to hear it. I don't need to hear it. This is only... This is well, only- that's, not just about, that's just about him more so, but also there was a bit of a controversy over the weekend. But anyway, go anyway. on. Um, in, Yay, in, Jennifer! <laughs> well, mostly it's always Jennifer more than Benifer for us, obviously. But in very exciting news, uh, JLo has a new documentary coming to Netflix called Half Time. June 14th is the date. Will it be enough to turn Netflix fortunes around? We say probably not, but we'll still watch it. Now, um, Andrea, guess who's in? I know you're a fan of JLo's recent film, Marry Me, which I'm also a fan of. Somebody watched that on a plane this weekend and went out of their way to mess me going, it's the worst film I've ever seen in my whole entire life. Film. Like, it's a great film. Marry me, marry me, marry me. Okay. This is the gossip about Ben Affleck. Apparently he was on Raya and he was after selling... That's, been, that's been already discredited, Andrea. Do not be bringing me discredited blind items designed to take down Jennifer Lopez's joy. I'm not having it. Okay. Now... Guess who's in the new Jennifer Lopez film, Shotgun Wedding? Me. Jennifer Coolidge. Oh, gosh. The best. Close. My icon. (laughs) I'm going to give you the the logline for this movie. A couple's extravagant destination wedding is hijacked by criminals. In the process of saving their families, they rediscover why they fell in love in the first place. I don't know why Uh, they need to rediscover it when they're actually getting married. Anyway, sounds great. Now, I, I'm, I'm obviously bought in. It's very, it's very similar to the Sandra Bullock film I seen it the other day. What was that? Which one? Obviously, well, I think I need to get some fish oils for my brain. <laughs> the Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum one in the cinema at the moment. Oh, The Lost the City. Dipper, Lost City. Yeah. Um, another upcoming Jennifer Lopez film is called The Mother. Also something about assassins. Also, or that's going to be on Netflix. How has she found time to fall in love again with all these films coming out? Like falling in love is a full-time job. Have you not seen Marry Me? Like that's the whole, <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> but So we have The Mother. We have Shotgun Wedding coming at us. We have The Mother coming at us. But the JLo project that I'm most excited about is The Godmother. I know that's kind of confusing because there's two films with very similar titles, but... Jennifer Lopez is going to be playing the in this biopic the infamous Colombian drug lord Griselda Blanco with the script written by Terry Winter who wrote Wolf of Wall Street and oh. William Monaghan who wrote The Departed. He's apparently on board as well. And apparently Reed Morano is directing who's an amazing director and cinematographer. She hasn't done much direction work but her, she's an amazing cinematographer and people may know her work as a cinematographer on projects as diverse as Frozen River and the LCD Sound System documentary, Shut Up and Play the Hits. And she's also directed episodes of Handmaid's Tale. So she's apparently on board. 
This Sorry, it feels like our JLo is stepping up into like, I don't want to dismiss rom-coms as not being like serious, but it feels like a, a serious film. Yeah, but like Hustlers is an amount. Hustlers yeah, is basically yeah. Scarface, you know, just with strippers. Yeah. You know, Hustlers is an amazing film. Um, and she sh- 100% Hustlers should have been nominated for Best Picture and J-Lo should have been nominated for Best Actress, hands down. And I'm not just saying that as, as just a Just for the moment where she invited that girl into her coat. Come into my fur. <laughs> <laughs> um, here is the pitch for The Godmother. Are you ready? The Godmother will follow Lopez as Blanco, who worked her way up the ranks of the male-dominated Colombian drug circuit, overcoming an impoverished childhood to become one of, one of the most revered, powerful, and dangerous drug lords in the world, known as La Madrina. Like, hook it to my veins. Kind of like the story of the Kinahans as well. Well, or any drug lord, drug I suppose, lord. yeah. Okay, now it's time for <laughs> Book of the Week. So my book of the week this week is called The Instant. It's by Amy Liptrot. Amy Liptrot, previously her first book was called The Outrun. These are both memoirs. The Outrun was a memoir was a memoir of basically she moved uh, back to like super duper North Scottish islands, like beyond Orkney, Outer Hebrides, can't really remember what it was. Um, after partying in London for years and she needed to like give up booze and drugs and stuff. So she moved back home and the, the outrun was all about like rediscovering her home, living on her own on a remote island and nature and just trying to find herself again and shed all that London. <laughs> yes, exactly. Nature lover Andrea will relate. Um, now this one is the second book that she's written. Also memoir. It's called The Instant and this kind of tracks her going, hang on a second, what am I actually doing living on this island on my own? And she moves to Berlin and tries to find herself in that city. But there's also, yeah, and that's me. Um, And um, and, uh, again, loads of nature drops in, particularly around um, birds and hawks and uh, all of the kind of hidden nature in Berlin. Berlin is one of the greenest um, cities in the world, basically. It's one of the greenest uh, cities uh, and uh, capitals in Europe. I think 40% of Berlin is, is green space, parks, etc. And it's also one of the most tree-heavy uh, capitals anywhere. So there's so much nature, including random stuff like loads of raccoons that are obviously not native to Germany, but ended up here. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a really interesting exploration of the city and what it means to move somewhere and not really know what you're doing and not really have any friends and trying to date and stuff like that. So it's called The Instant by Amy Liptrot. Um, and I would recommend this podcast is produced by Andrew Mangan. Crystal Clear gave us his tuna chicken roll for our soundtrack. Sarah Fox did all of our design. This week's tuna chicken roll. So I decided that this one was going to be especially for our Patreon supporters and to thank you all for being on this journey very namaste with us um because there is a lot to process in this wild world we live in and hopefully we help in some way to make a bit of sense of it because making this podcast helps us to make sense of it too and process it so it really does feel like we're in this together and only with your support can we continue on so i want to say thank you and that's why this week's tuna chicken roll is Dido's thank you. <laughs> JK, I'm bloody joking. Uh, not, I'm not joking about the thanks, but I am joking about the tuna chicken roll. This week's tuna chicken roll is Flash of Light. Lucasy and Brigante featuring Roisin Murphy. How could I not do a Roisin Murphy song after that life-changing weekend? Yeah. I've been Una Mullally. I've been Andrea Horan. This has been United Ireland. And that was Poverty as an Election Issue. No.